0: Good afternoon, church. You know the whole point of an introduction, any introduction, is uh, is to capture your listener's ear and to gently direct them to the main body of what you're going to say. Um, But I think it's possible that the topic of the spiritual gifts is uh, as an exception to this reality, because uh, for various reasons, and I mean various reasons, people come to this uh topic already interested in it and they come with a raft of questions and thoughts in their mind about it so i want to just get right into it today we'll be starting in a little bit with some scriptures that will outline what the spiritual gifts are i'm going to act as your tour guide today i'm going to gonna be in a tour bus and I'm gonna guide you along a route past the gifts those will be our sights okay I'll be making some comments on each of them Thank you. and um, for some we will stop and take in the scenery because there's a little bit to observe for other gifts we will drive by a little bit quicker just to get through them because there are quite a few and others we will just slow down and just observe a little bit about what it is about. Uh, So, And I'll give you the the application up front. So if if you're gonna make notes, make a note of three questions that I want you to ask yourself every time we discuss a gift, no matter what the gift is. Ask yourself these three questions. Number one, is this gift evident in my life and service within the church? Is this gift evident in my life and service within the church? You're trying to figure out whether it is something that you have, okay? Number two, based on my understanding of what this gift is, do I see it being used in my church here in Calvary, Cardiff, and beyond, in other churches that you might have visited? Based on my understanding of what this gift is, and you may or may not have it, Is it, do I see it being used here in Calvary and in the church at large? Okay, number two. Number three, very important question. If I see this gift being used, is it being used in the way Scripture uses it? If I see this gift being used in this church or elsewhere, is it being used in the way it's used in Scripture? Those are the three questions I'd like for you to lodge in your mind Ask them of each of the gifts as we go past them. Even if you've got to take this home and explore in more detail, always ask yourself those questions. That's the application. Let's pray real briefly and we'll carry on. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word yet again. And in this day, Lord, we come understanding, with a desire to understand the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to the church, Lord their purposes, and uh, how they are to be used within the church, within our own lives, Lord, to build one another up. Father, I pray that we'll receive this with open hearts and minds. Uh, Where we need to be challenged, let us be challenged. Where we can accept your word, let us accept your word. Father, uh, we just lay ourselves humbly before your word, myself included, Lord, and would you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before we get into it, a couple of pointers. Firstly, it's widely accepted that the spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit generally fall into one of two categories. First one would be the non-miraculous gifts. You might wanna say it this way, the seemingly ordinary gifts. That's one category. The second category would be the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, okay? The the seemingly attention-grabbing gifts. Those are the two broad categories that gifts fall into. The other thing to note is that Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly how we go about dis- discovering our gifts. What? How do we determine what the gift that we have is? You know, It doesn't say, shake a leg, turn around, say, kumbaya, I should have bought a Yamaha, and boom, there are... Three gifts written on the wall for you. That's superstition. That's foolishness, of course. It doesn't do that, right? The God, the Holy Spirit, places in us a unique combination of gifts uh, um, that's suited to us so that we can thrive in church ministry, okay? And Scripture tells us that we we have them. So the implication is that we can already know them. And practically, that usually means they're confirmed to us as we step out and use them in the context of our church so just bear that in mind the other thing to bear in mind generally is that all believers yeah all believers will have a general ability in variety of gifts but some people will show a particular strong ability in that gift for it to be considered a gift okay so when you think about um, the biblical, uh, uh, the spiritual gifts. Think of it more like general abilities in most areas, but strong ability in, in, in a few. I'll give you an example. A lot of people wouldn't dream of standing <laughs> on a Sunday morning or afternoon and teaching the church, but they're very capable and ought to teach and explain the word to their family and their friends yeah uh the same goes for evangelism so you see we have a general ability and responsibility actually in many great areas uh, but a strong ability in some so that said then let me front load you with some scriptures we're going to be hopping around a little bit but let's 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 go to three key texts and uh, let's look at these texts and what they tell us about the spiritual gifts overall put your finger into first first Corinthians chapter 12. Okay, find 1 Corinthians chapter 12, particularly verses 4 to 11. So if you can bookmark that. Once you've got that locked in, because we'll come back to it. Find also Romans chapter 12, just one book before. Romans chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 4 to 8 there. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You want Romans chapter 12, and you also want a short one, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. So I'll start, let's go to the 1 Corinthians 12 passage first. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 4 to 8, I read from the ESV version here, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service but the same Lord. to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these, verse 11, are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Stay in 1 Corinthians 12 and just shift your eyes to verse 28 now. Verse 28, Paul continues In this dialogue, he says, And God God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts so that was from 1 corinthians 12 please hop back into romans chapter 12 and let's see what romans has to say what paul says to the roman church to us through this passage here romans chapter 12 verses 4 to 8 which david read for us earlier on we'll recap for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function And lastly, let's hop forward to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. I did say I'm going to front load you with the scripture. So, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, which says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 11. Whoever speaks as one speaks, oracles of God, whoever serves as one serves, by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything god may be glorified through jesus christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever amen a lot of scripture there but right off the bat right off the bat we can know some very important facts fact number one is that the source i'll just make the statements here the source of the spiritual gifts is the holy spirit himself right that's the source of the holy spirit first corinthians 12 11 told us that second fact Each and every believer possesses a gift. Peter told us that. Each and every believer possesses a gift. No one missing. Third fact. Believers have different gifts that perform different functions. We don't have the same things that do the same things. We have different gifts that perform different functions. Romans 12 tells us that. Chapter 4. Now, here's the general purpose of the gifts. If you were to wrap them all up as one you know, what are the purposes, the purposes of the spiritual gifts, for the common good. The benefits are for us all, for us all. It's for the edification of the church. Now we can throw this term around quite loosely, edification, edify, edify, I looked it up to see what it actually means, and it, the Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary online says it means to instruct and improve especially in moral and religious knowledge. It's very interesting so I think for us we would say that edification means that the the body of Christ improves in its moral obedience to God and the knowledge of God that's what edification is so that's the purpose of the gifts and lastly the purpose of the gifts simply to serve one another For for me to serve you through what I do for you to serve me through what you do so if you were to list these individually now from just 1 Corinthians 12 you'd get a whopping 14 gifts from Romans 12 there's another seven I wouldn't call this list exhaustive really because 1 Corinthians 12 4 tells us that there are a variety of gifts there are a variety of activities a variety varieties of service so you can split them out so and there are also some gifts that cross over in the passages for example prophecy it appears a couple of times and there's, there, there's, there are some that seem to be the same thing, like administration and, and leadership, for example. So what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to, before we get on our tour bus, okay, I'm going to combine a bunch of them and we're going to talk very quickly through 12 non-miraculous gifts and three miraculous gifts, okay? Remember those three questions. Is the gift evident in my life and service within the church based on my understanding of the gift? Is it being, do I see it being used here? in this church and in the church at large and if I see it being used is it being used the way it's used in Scripture so first stop let's go through the non-miraculous gifts and we'll go slow for the first couple first one I want to talk about is service often overlooked service the gift of service Now we said that one of the purposes for all believers who all have gifts is to use them to serve one another so why is this one singled out well because a strong ability—remember we talked about strong ability—a strong ability in service is um, is reflected in that individual's commitment and their willingness to put themselves out there for others. They're the first one to rise to the challenge. You know, they're the one that's always there, working for the body of of Christ in physical uh, ministry, such as serving food and, and performing maintenance. And an example of that in Scripture. A really good example of that would be Tabitha, otherwise known as Dorcas. And you come across this account in Acts, Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 36 onwards. Uh, basically, Dorcas, she used her talent of sewing. She was a gifted seamstress. Now, her talent of sewing is not her gift. Her gift was that she used her talent in the gift of serving. She made garments and clothes for the widows in the, in the church. And so one thing to note is you might have an ability or a talent to do something, play music, sing, whatever it is, you know, that is a talent. And as much as you've learned it, you're perfecting it, growing in it, but it becomes a service when you offer it up for use in church. That's when it becomes service. And she was faithful in helping the widows uh, by making them clothes. Now, this is the interesting thing. She died. Dorcas died. And guess what happened they called peter so in that account you see two gifts you see her with her gift of serving but you see peter the apostle being called to raise her from the dead with his gift and that tells me that the gift of service is so important such as dorcas a seamstress who dies is considered so important that she was called up from the dead peter came and rose her up from the dead we should never overlook that gift of service and those that serve us in the church and that's 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 a fantastic example acts 9 the story of Dorcas number two let's move along to helps the gift of helps and you might think it overlaps with the other but this is the ability to aid in a time of need Or to bear one another's burdens as a situation arises. So this is the person that when they hear that their brother or sister is going through some misfortune, they offer everything they have to accommodate that person. You know, put them up in their house, deliver food, uh, transport their kids back and forth, write their letters and emails for them if they're not able to do that. Things like that. Again, look, we're all called to to, to demonstrate uh, help an aid but someone who is particularly gifted in this who has that strong ability is probably unlikely to ask the kind of qualifying questions most of us do oh how much is this going to cost me if i do that Or how much time have i got to do that how does that impact my timetable they don't think about any of these inconveniences or whatever they're going to go through self sacrifice is the priority for such a person right at the top there an example of that would be mark 15 47 into Mark 162. Mary Magdalene. She had a wonderful gift of helping. Now, not only did she follow Jesus, and in Luke 8, you would read about her of providing for the disciples out of her own pocket. But in this account, Mark 15, 47, Mary, she's known for many things, but she's probably best known for being the first to see Jesus after his resurrection. She was on the way to the tomb where he laid. And what was she there? What was she going there to do? She was on her way to take care of his body. That body that had been bruised and beaten and slashed in a state. That's, a, that's dirty work. She was on her way with her uh, uh, materials that she had bought to embalm and to prepare that body for a decent and proper burial. She was the first one on the way there obviously she finds that he was resurrected, he wasn't there. But she that spoke so much of the gift that she has. So that's a um, another example. Did she know that she would go down in history for that? No. Did she expect to be recognized for that? No, not at all. Okay, right now I'm going to put my foot on the gas, Okay, and we're going to now whiz past uh, some of the other gifts quite quickly. I'm just going to Say what they are, give you a Bible reference if you're making note, uh, you can, uh, and, and just give you an idea as to what these are. So number three, administration or leadership. I'm, I'm using them interchangeably here. First Timothy 4, 11 to 16 is your reference if you want to look that up. Now this is the ability to oversee the flock and it should be exhibited in elders and pastors um, as well as leaders of music ministries, leaders of youth ministries and so forth, evangelistic associations, organizing, bringing people together for a common goal, administration leadership. Number four, giving. Your reference here is Acts 4, 36, giving. This is simply the material ministry of giving food, clothes, money, reaching into your pocket. In response to the to the needs of the church number five mercy Romans 12 4 that's the ability to show deep empathy and compassion to those who have physical or emotional needs a person like this will weep with you they will walk your walk with you it's not just a feeling yeah uh, mercy it's always followed by action mercy number six Exhortation Um, references for this: Ephesians six chapter uh, six verse twenty-one, even Acts four thirty-six again. Exhortation: What is this? This is the extraordinary ability to come alongside a person and encourage and motivate them in love, calling them into action. Um, And every letter of Paul really is just littered with exhortation. Number seven: wisdom. Acts six ten is your reference. Acts six ten wisdom. Now, this is the gift where a person applies spiritual insight to fellow believers, and they know right from wrong, or they can tell right from wrong. It's carefully analysing and judging a practical scenario, a practical situation. You know, such and such has gone and got themselves a a, a new fiance. And they, they, They'd be able to advise on that. You see, they can they, they can just have this, this wisdom of, of judging whether a person should pursue or not pursue something, perhaps. And they draw out the implications of the actions or the lack of taking action. Wisdom. Discernment, number eight, and your reference is Acts 13, 8 to 10. Discernment. Now, you might think this overlaps with wisdom, uh, and perhaps it does, but but really, when you look into that in, into Scripture, you'll see that discernment is referring to the strong ability to be able to distinguish between truth and error. Not just what's right and wrong, but truth and error. And I'll tell you what: this is a gift that serves as a protection for the church, especially on theological matters. Yeah, where we can say something is heretical and something is not. That's discernment. Number nine, knowledge. Acts 18.26 Knowledge. Now this isn't the Lord told me to tell you in a word of knowledge that X, Y and Z and whatever. it's, It's not really that. This knowledge, it's an understanding of the facts of Scripture. Accurately. It's from the human's perspective, it's the ability to know the truths of Scripture both broadly and deeply. Now, And it's often reflected in things like scholarship. If anyone here has read something like a commentary or a a book that explains some aspect of the Bible in a deeper sense, you are benefiting from the gift of knowledge that God has given to that author. Okay? So we're very thankful for knowledge. Ten, teaching. Teaching, Acts 17, 1-3. The ability to explain the word of God and help hearers to understand the scriptures as the author intended. Teacher will take something complex and break it down. They can also take something simple and draw great applications from it. Teaching. Eleven. Right. I'm going to slow down a little bit on this one. Because faith is this gift. Faith. And the gift of faith can be misunderstood. Because we're all called to have faith. In fact, we all have faith. right? So why is, again, why is this one singled out? Well, this gift is a strong ability, a consistent enabling faith that truly believes God in the face of overwhelming obstacles, in the face of impossibilities. It believes God for great things despite the odds. And John MacArthur refers to this as the gift of... Of prayer because it's primarily expressed toward God through prayer. Now, the person that has this gift is a living example of what rock solid faith and trusting in the Lord looks like. It's a wonderful example to their brothers and sisters in the church, some of whom may be weaker in faith and more prone to doubt. Do you see so this this brother or sister might not realize it but they're serving those who might look to them to imitate them so that god may be glorified in their own situations which otherwise might be full of a bit of doubt do you see so the gift of faith now where in the new testament can we get examples of faith you only need to turn to hebrew that entire chapter of number 11 is the Hebrew the Bible's Hall of Faith, and I know it's mainly Old Testament saints that are listed there. But these people have all demonstrated unwavering faith in God's word at seemingly impossible odds. Look at Noah, for example, referenced in Hebrews 11:7. Do you know for 120 years Noah was building that ark? God had told him that He's going to bring a flood destroy everything and for 120 years there's noah getting older and older building this ark being derided being ridiculed by all those around him meanwhile he's trying to preach to them but what kept him going this is an example of trusting a strong ability to trust in the word of god and that growing obedience in doing that it's simple to say trust in the Lord, but it's very difficult sometimes to trust in the Word of God, and Noah exhibited that. He's an example of trusting in the Word of God. Faith. Next one. Prophecy, number 12. So this is the last of our non-miraculous gifts. Prophecy. Now I'm going to stop here for a minute and take in the scene. Okay. Prophecy, at its most basic definition... Is a message from God. Message from God. So to prophesy is to proclaim a message from God, and so the one who does this, therefore, is called a what? A prophet. Yeah. Now, although we think foretelling is is often associated with prophecy, actually, revealing the future is not always a necessary element of prophecy, because prophecy—the word also means. To tell forth, to declare, to proclaim, you know, call out something that's already there. In the Old Testament, the prophets would preface their words with that phrase that we all all know. Thus says the Lord. Or this is what the Lord says in different translations. For example, Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may serve me. Moses was to deliver that verbatim. Thus says the Lord. The point is, God made, you know, He communicated something to the prophets, and they in turn spoke directly for Him to others. Now, I won't read it now, but a reference Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. According to the first. verses of Deuteronomy 13, there are two signs of a true prophet. One is that he must never direct people to follow other gods. (laughs) Secondly, whenever that prophet speaks of something that's going to happen in the future, it will happen. There's a hundred percent hit rate without fail. If the prophet promotes the worship of false gods, if whatever they have proclaimed to happen does not happen he is deemed a false prophet. That's how prophets are judged in the Old Testament and their prophecies. And the New Testament, John the Baptist, and he's often referred to you know, affectionately as the, the last of the Old Testament prophets, he came and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He wasn't actually proclaiming something that is yet to, to happen. He said the kingdom of God and the Messiah, and he identified Jesus, This Jesus here, the Messiah is here. He was declaring something that was already happening and had happened. He'd said that the kingdom of God is on the scene. And the rest of the New Testament, after John the Baptist, you don't really hear about prophets. They're not mentioned very much. It seems that the apostles fulfilled the prophetic role because they spoke then directly and authoritatively uh, God, and their words are what's preserved in Scripture. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the household of God, the church, was founded, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, that's the longest section in the New Testament relating to prophecy. And in those chapters, you'll see that there was a problem in the church of Corinth. Um, They were just misusing this gift. You had, you know, as well as the gift of tongues, which we'll talk about, but the problem was that when believers gathered, too many prophets were speaking. They're just interrupting each other, talking this and talking that chaos. And Paul says, no, 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 this has to stop. At most, two or three prophets should speak. And when they do, one at a time. It's like children. yeah, One at a time. And on top of that, here's here's something very interesting. He said that when they speak, the congregation should weigh up what the prophet has just said. That's something that's not quite common in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when they say, thus says the Lord, you take it as thus says the Lord. There isn't a congregation of Israel that has to weigh up what they've said. They will be judged by whether their words come true or not. But even the New Testament suggests that these prophets, or a would-be prophet, is saying something, but they could be wrong. Therefore, we have to submit it to the judgment of the church. And that's very interesting. It's very interesting because it seems to me that Paul's directive of saying that the church should weigh that up means that potentially, by the time of the first century, the, 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 the prophecy and the prophet the gift of prophecy in some way, shape or form was perhaps beginning to wane a little bit in terms of and being an authoritative gift in the same manner it had been in the Old Testament so why do we place this gift among the non-miraculous why? because it is a spectacular thing to speak for the Lord especially in proclaiming things that are yet to happen and that thing comes to happen. That's spectacular. That's miraculous. However, the answer, I think, is that we have the closed canon of Scripture because everything that God wished to tell us about the future, including things that have passed and things that are yet to pass, for example, Revelations, we can safely say the Lord has thus already spoken. It's all here. It's all here. So prophecy isn't so much about telling the future as it is declaring what God has now already said in the pages of Scripture. So if the canon is closed, and it is, and someone comes to you and says, the Lord told me to tell you X, Y, and Z, and that thing is extra-biblical, then you have to weigh it up. It may be that it might need to be rejected. Or the Word of God actually isn't closed. Because otherwise, if it's authoritative, then what they're saying should be written in the pages of Scripture and should be available for us all to read. Don't you think, if it's that authoritative? So we have to weigh that up very carefully. So, that said... I'll say this when you hear Kevin, Rob, Mark, David, Reese, me, or any other biblically informed preacher preaching, he is fulfilling a prophetic role in the manner that he is proclaiming, explaining, and explaining the completed revealed Word of God. Pastors and elders are never called prophets in the New Testament, yet, as a pastor or an elder, we can confidently and boldly stand here and say, thus says the Lord. Why? Because we follow it up with chapter and verse in the scripture. The Lord has already spoken. Prophecy. Right. We're going to head into part B, our miraculous gifts now. Okay? Let's, let's, let's make our way into that. And we'll stop and park our bus here as well because there's plenty to see here. Now remember those three questions. Remember those three questions and keep asking those three questions at every junction, okay? So, the miraculous or the sign gifts. Firstly, why are they called the sign gifts? Sign. Well, think about it. A sign points to something, doesn't it? It points to something. They are a means to an end. If you set yourself on a journey to London... You're in the A48, you see Pantouin, St. Merlin's, and you finally get onto to the M4, and the first sign you see says London 140 miles. Are you going to stop there thinking you've arrived? No, it's, it's silly. You haven't, it's a sign. You have to follow it and follow through and continue going. That's exactly what signs are like. You, would make, you know you're in London once you've arrived in Hammersmith and Knightsbridge and Chiswick. You know you're in London at that point. And that's how it is with the miraculous gifts, as, as signs. They're designed to draw attention not to the sign itself, yeah, or the, the wondrous act itself, but to the person doing them, and more so to the point that they're making. You have to follow it through and see where it's pointing to. So the first one, miracles, and let's talk about that. This is the ability to perform wonders and signs. A supernatural disruption to the natural order, if, if you like. And our Lord performed many of these kind of miracles, turning water to wine, silencing the, storm, the storms, creating food on the spot to feed thousands of people. Paul had this gift, and he used it to affirm his apostleship in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, where he writes, he says, The signs of an apostle were performed among you with all endurance, Signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So look, something to note here about miracles. A miracle to us is supernatural. It's it's, it's outside of what our reality is. We're so used to seeing decay, death, decline, illness, moral corruption. And so when we see a miracle, we call it a miracle. It's supernatural. But in reality, think about this. When Jesus healed the person or created food to feed the hungry, he's giving us a glimpse of true eternal reality. He's giving us a glimpse of what that's supposed to look like. And it gives meaning to to the prophet, the old prophet John the Baptist, when he says the kingdom of heaven is here, the Messiah is, is here. Because look, if it wasn't for the problem of sin, we're not supposed to be hungry. If it wasn't for the problem of sin we're not supposed to be corrupt if it wasn't for the problem of sin we're not supposed to be born into suffering and disease and to die and to have natural disasters and to be killed by natural disasters and so forth the full and future restoration of all of these things is granted to those who place their faith in Christ and who God has called through Christ to himself and where Christ reigns eternally, we will see those things restored. That will be normality. So it's really important to remember that, that miracles are a glimpse into how things are really to be like. What can we say about healing? Now, if you break your leg and it's put in a cast and it takes six weeks to get better, you'd say it's healed. But we'd call that a very ordinary process, isn't it? And this gift is the ability... Of an individual to bypass the natural, ordinary process and bring healing to a person's deficiency immediately, completely, instantly, permanently, doesn't come back. That's healing. Ask those three questions. And the New Testament is littered with examples of our Lord healing, bringing sight to the blind, Matthew. Chapter 9, verse 27, replacing a withered limb with a wholesome one on the spot. Mark 3, 1 to 6, healing was also unconditional. You didn't necessarily have to have faith or believe who Jesus was to be healed. There's an example of that in John 9, 25. Of course, the ultimate form of healing would be raising the dead to life. I think that's the only exception where a dead person raised to life will eventually die again that's the ultimate form of healing. And Jesus did that. Little girl in Mark 5.31, and again with Lazarus in John 11.38. It's interesting because the apostles and their assistants also had this gift. As you look at the account of Paul and Barnabas, told in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 13, it says, Now at Lystra, or Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, their language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. It's interesting that only Paul spoke, but Barnabas is attributed to have performed this miracle as well. They called him Zeus. In their idolatrous Greek mythology, Zeus is the chief and highest god in the hierarchy of, of gods. Now, when you look into the purposes of healing and miracles, there are a few things that stand out. And we've already said that the purposes of the spiritual gifts generally, uh, are to build up the body of Christ. But when you look through Scripture, you'll note that the miraculous gifts, and in particular, I'm talking about healing and, and uh, miracles, they went a little further with regard to purpose. And I'll just make the statements here. Number one, the gift of healing and miracles confirm the gospel message. They confirm the gospel message. Hebrews 2, 3-4. to 4. Number two, the gift of healing and miracles confirmed the apostles and it gives them credibility. Acts 5 12. Number three, the gift of healing and miracles confirmed Paul specifically. Because, think about it, Paul's route to becoming an apostle was different to that of the, uh, the original 12 and also different from Matthias, who was chosen to replace uh, Judas. He definitely needed authentication. Romans 15, 18 and 19. For the gift of healing and miracles confirmed both the message and the messenger. Now, look, we can see that the gifts of miracles and healings um, was to act, the purpose of them was to act as a way of giving credentials to the messenger who came with a message from God. Apostle means literally messenger. Here's an illustration for you to think about. If you lived in the first century, Okay, in the time of Paul writing to the 1st Corinthians, and you know that 1st century time, and you get three preachers come to your town, all preaching whatever they're preaching. Who are you going to believe? Are you not likely to believe the one that is able to perform signs and wonders and healings? Even Jesus, even Jesus challenged his haters to believe his works. He said, if you don't believe in me, who I said I am, believe in my works, John 10:38 believe in my works that shows that the father is in me so the works are a means of authenticating the message and the messenger now let's say tomorrow Monday you've got a day off okay and you've planned to take your friend for a coffee in Queen Street in town and tomorrow comes and there you are you go off with your friend walking up St Mary's Street you cut through the arcades onto the haze mooch around there for a little bit. Walk up a little bit as you're about to get onto Queen Street at the top there, on the left, yeah, where Superdrug is. There's a preacher standing there, and and they're preaching. He's saying, "God broke the law for love. God gave us a law, then as a great display of love, God broke that law." Amen. And you stand there, and you listen to it for a minute, and you walk on a couple of steps, and you know where the uh sweet factory is on the right there um there's another preacher standing there and and and, and he's praying or oh, he's preaching he's shouting god displays the magnitude of his love not by breaking the law but by satisfying the law and you and your friend what do you do do, do you at that point pray in your head you say oh lord for the sake of my friend here and me please make one of these guys to do a miracle, you know, turn the sky red, or heal that lady in the wheelchair over there so that I know who's telling the truth. Is that really what you would pray? Is that what you would think? Is that what we would do? Absolutely not. What would we do? Well, you and your friend will carry on. You go and sit in your coffee shop, have your coffee, and you'll think, hey, you got a Bible on you? Yeah, I got it on my app, let's get it out. You don't know maybe where to start, no problem. You're searching through, you're searching through, and your friend comes across, hey, hey check this out, Romans 8. And you go and look it up. Oh, Romans 8, where was it? Romans 8, what, what, what verse? 3, 8, 3 and 4, let's read it. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Read on, read on, read on. by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What's happened? Immediately you know, as you think about that, God sent his Son to die on the cross, fulfilled the law so that he might look upon us who walk in his spirit as the law fulfilled in us as well. That's justification. Immediately you know that the first preacher you heard is talking absolute tosh. It's foolishness. That's what you need to do. And that's what you would do. You you see what happened there? The message doesn't need a miracle to be verified. It, it, nor did the messenger. The plain and truthful, revealed Word of God was sufficient 100%. So, okay, look, the Word of God alone is sufficient to verify the message and the messenger. But what about the apostles and their assistants who did these miracles? And what's surfacing here is we might be asking, who can be an apostle? Can I be an apostle and do miracles to have that gift? Can Can I be an apostle? That's a very important question. Very important question. And... I think there are certain biblical criteria to consider, at least three. First criteria is that to be an apostle, you're actually endowed with the gift to be able to heal and do miracles. It's like part of the deal. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised his apostles in Acts 1.8. And the apostles that were present there at the time were all but Judas, of course. Okay, And he promised them that they would receive power in order for them to do the trailblazing work of spreading the gospel. I'm going to turn and read that to you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says here, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, an apostle received power okay and it was manifested as we see now in acts 2 the arrival of that power the holy spirit and from then on you see in acts the apostles doing all kinds of wonders and signs and miracles commensurate with exactly what they had been promised the power that they'd been that they'd received number two you might say well How else could one be an apostle? Can can I I sign up to be an apostle? Well, an apostle was chosen personally by Christ himself. Chosen personally by Christ himself. Matthew 10, 1 says that, And he, Jesus, called unto him, called to himself, the twelve. That's all Matthew says. other Gospels, explain a little bit more detail. Now, you might say, Paul... Was he chosen personally by Christ? Yes, he was. He was chosen. In Acts chapter 9, he met the risen Christ and he was called by the risen Christ. What about Matthias? Okay, he might be considered an exception because he was chosen by Lot, you know, casting of dice to decide whether he'd be an apostle. It was between him and another chap called Barsabbas. So you might say, oh, well, he wasn't chosen by God. Arguably, though, the Jews then, and it goes all the way back to the time of Jonah, and even before, they believed that God spoke to them. You know, they w- they would know the will of God through the casting of lots, casting of, of 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 dice. And Hebrews tells us, Hebrews one tells us that you know, in previous times God spoke in many ways, including that. But now He speaks through His Son. But even if you don't take that, the third, and probably the a nail in the coffin criteria for any would-be apostle who wants to do miracles is this. Before Matthias and Barsabbas were even put forward as potential candidates for the post, the eleven disciples came up with a very important criterion to choose, to even whittle through whoever was there to come up with the two. And this is what they came up with. Acts 1 21 to 22. And the, the 11, they decided among themselves, they said, look, this is how we're going to choose to replace Judas. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Do you see what happened there? They... There's two things to note there to this qualification. Whoever this new incumbent is, they have to have been with those 11 disciples from the time Jesus started his ministry. That is, when Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist in that river and the Holy Spirit landed on his shoulder in the form of a dove and God, and God the Father spoke, This is my son, hear ye him. They must have seen that. They also must have been with the disciples and been with Jesus throughout the three years of his ministry. Seen him die on the cross. Seen him being buried in that tomb. Seen him resurrect and ascend. That is criteria that not many people I know can fulfill. Ask those three questions. Very important. Something is very interesting as well. Did you notice that only Judas Iscariot was ever replaced as an apostle? Only Judas. There is no evidence anywhere in the New Testament that another apostle was ever replaced. Most of them were persecuted and died horrible deaths apart from John, who was exiled later in his life to uh, the island of Patmos, and he died at a grand old age. Um, I can't remember how old he was, probably in his 90s, I think, but he, he was old. He was the exception. Everyone else died. And you don't see them being replaced. You also don't see the apostles trying to expand the office. They didn't sit there and say, you know, Jesus had 12, now he's gone. Hmm, Judas is not here. Do you know what? Let's get 50 guys. Yeah? Let's get 100 guys. It's not apostle uh, incorporated or anything like that. Do you see? You don't see that happening. You never see that happening. So that means Judas was self-eliminated. He was replaced to restore that post back to the original 12, the number desired by their maker and their master. And from there, they never replaced anyone. When one died, one died. The next died, he died. And with him, whatever he had. So when you read in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, you read, Paul says that, God gives the gift of certain posts, offices. He gave the gift of apostles, gave the gift of prophets before them. He gave the gift of evangelists, shepherds, teachers. When you see that, you need to look at that in the timeline, in the biblical timeline, so that you would say, Amen, thank you, Lord, that you gave the apostles and that they did their work miraculously and faithfully and the prophets before them. Amen, that they did their work miraculously and faithfully to lay the foundation of the church. How many times do you lay a foundation? Once. If you have to lay a foundation twice or three times, there's a problem with your building skills, right? They laid the foundation once. Now your prayer might continue. Father God, continue to use us, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to declare your written and your written word, and to apply your written word, so that we can complete this magnificent relay in strength and power. It's so important. So if you go back to your Queen Street illustration, then those preachers, they didn't do a miracle to verify themselves. They didn't do a miracle to verify their, their message. Uh, why? Not even the true one, because God's word verified them for us. Yeah, it's like a double-edged sword. It cuts and divides, false from error, uh, false from the true. But even the true, the true preacher, wouldn't have been able to necessarily have done a miracle because he wasn't and couldn't be an apostle. Think about those three questions on this particular gift. Now, someone might say, "Look, hang on a second. Hang on, hang on. If in the New Testament the apostles." took the mantle from the Old Testament prophets, and the apostles are the ones that were gifted to heal and do miracles, and the apostles were never replaced when they died, then are you saying that God doesn't do miracles and healing now? You're putting God in a box. Be very, very careful. Leaning too much. That's a very important question. It's a very valid question. We have to think about that. No, we're not saying that God doesn't do miracles, that God doesn't heal. God can heal and do miracles whenever he pleases. God, here's the thing, God alone is the miracle maker and healer. He has chosen to use people right, to do that on his behalf at times. These people would have repeatedly do verifiable acts of wonders And then you have God who came in the flesh and did these on earth Himself. And then through prayer and faith and confession of sin, as it says to us in James 5.13, when we call upon Him, He does indeed heal. He does. What I'm saying is, look, it doesn't seem that specific people in specific offices are empowered with that specific gift to do those specific kinds of things right now. And never forget, by the way, every day when a person, a sinner, is saved, when they now hate the sin that they once loved and is given new life, what do you call that if it is not an act of God Himself? That is a miracle. There are miracles happening Off the charts right now. Now about putting God in a box then. Very important thing that we also need to understand. Well of course that's not possible. Okay, It's a logical fallacy. It's poor reasoning. How can the creature control the creator? We've said God alone is the miracle maker. The healer. And guess what? That means... He's usually doing these miracles all alone. Do you know, look, imagine, imagine if they invented a human miracle detector, okay? A nice little device that beeps every time it detects a flurry of miraculous activity done through the hands of humans, okay? Let's say Johan, my son, saves up his money, sells his Switch and all the little things that he likes, and buys his old daddy. One of these devices for Christmas. Alright. Thank you son. I'll be very happy. Here's me standing there. Oh, how do you turn it on mate? <coughs> There's an on button behind. Okay. So I've turned it on. And what am I going to do? I'm going to apply it to the biblical timeline. I'm going to see how it beeps. If this thing works. So here I am. I flick back there. Let's go back here. Genesis. Get back into Genesis. And I stick my beeper on there. My detector. Turn it on. silence. Creation's a miracle. Silence. Hmm. Thinking, you know what? It doesn't work. But dad, it's a human miracle detector. Those are God's miracles. That's why it's silent. Sodomites are blinded. Lot's wife turns to salt. Abraham and Isaac have a son. Impossible. She is 90 and had been barren all her life. Miracle, but it's not beeping. It will start beeping when you're deep in Exodus. Moses, okay, beep, 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 there you go. It's going, it's going. Moses, Joshua, it's going, it's going, beeping. Silence for a bit. And you get to First Kings. Beeps again, Elijah. Elisha is beeping. <laughs> Silence for a bit. Prophets? Isaiah, one beep, one silence for hundreds and thousands of years silence, silence, silence you get to the New Testament it's gone off their charts Jesus on the scene is beeping like crazy the God man is there it's beeping, beeping silence for a little bit Acts of the Apostles beeps lots of beeps epistles revelation that whole revelation is a miracle quiet do you see? There's only relatively few beeps where miracles are done through the hands of human in the biblical timeline. So the conclusion, to me, is not that we're putting God in a box. Actually, it looks like God puts man in a box. Think about it for a minute. He is the miracle maker, the healer. He alone does miracles. You need to get a different detector if you want to Get more beeps. Go and buy the God alone detector and start from then Genesis will start going nuts all the way through to revelation. <laughs> you right? It, it sounds silly, but it's true. It's true. God does alone, He alone does the miracles. And He's put man in the box. Every now and then He'll open the box and say, okay, run out a little bit, go and do a couple miracles on my behalf. <laughs> Come back in, that's enough. Wait a bit, okay. Joshua, you go. Your turn. Come back. And so forth. Do you see? So that's not to deny miracles or to put God in a box. That's to have a high view of God for He alone is worthy of all praise. Full stop. Why are we so desperate to praise man for what God is doing? I couldn't care less. So, The tour bus arrives at the last site for the day. Gift of tongues. And I'm going to be very brief. This is the third miraculous sign gift. Okay, we'll stop here, but I will be brief. Because a lot of what we said about miracles and healing can be applicable to this. But there are some differences. First and probably most important though is this. What is the gift of tongues? What is it? The Greek word translates tongues literally as languages. Literally, it's languages. It's nothing mysterious, it's languages. Now, why is it a miraculous gift? I mean, I could stand here and speak to you in my language from Ghana and you won't understand. That's not a gift. That's because I've had to learn it. I would have been hearing it all my life. This is a gift because the person that's been given this gift is speaking in a language unknown to himself which he's never had to learn. That's the miraculous bit of it. It's like, was downloaded directly into you. Imagine that. That's the gift element of it. You never had to learn it. Acts 2, verses 1 to 11, the whole account of Pentecost is spectacular. Uh, uh, and it tells us about how the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles and, and some of their assistants there. And, and they were speaking in tongues, in languages. The first thing is it's a language, okay? And it also had to be accompanied by the gift of interpretation. First Corinthians 14, 27 and 28 will tell you that. The gift of interpretation. Sometimes maybe if the speaker themselves has that gift, then great. Otherwise, it'd have to be a secondary person there to interpret what the primary guy with the gift is saying so that you know what's going on. And when in Acts chapter 2. I, just to save time, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But when you can, st- you can still turn there. I'll make a quick reference to something. Acts chapter 2. What happened there is that we saw before that Jesus promised his apostles power, the Holy Spirit. That promise even goes further back into John chapter 14, 15, and 16 in the upper room when he tells them that the helper, the advocate, will come. And he finally comes on Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 records it. What happened there is that he has come and uh, he has arrived, and the power, and in the in the apostles receive the power of the Spirit of God, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin speaking in languages, languages they'd never learned before. That's significant because Pentecost, what was going on there was there was a celebration. They're celebrating uh, the Feast of, of, of Weeks, it's an Old Testament. Um, celebration It's an occurrence that happens 50 days. Uh, in this case, it was the seventh Sunday after Christ's resurrection. So you have in Jerusalem that day a lot of Jews that have been dispersed are from various nations of the world, and they're in Jerusalem. And they see these apostles and the assistants. They're speaking in languages that they themselves speak, in their home languages. And we know it's human languages because in verses 5 onwards, it says, devout men, Jews from every nation under heaven, were there in Jerusalem and they were bewildered when they saw these Galileans speaking in different languages, not least languages from their own countries. Uh, And in verse 11, they understood. And it said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This single event marks the birth of the church. It it, it is accompanied by the gift of tongues to the apostles. We've said this before. They are to be the trailblazers in taking the gospel, starting from Jerusalem and working in concentric circles, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. This gift, the ability to speak a human language that you've never learned and likely don't understand, unless you've been given the gift of interpretation, was such an important gift for that ministry. Starting there in Jerusalem where there were so many foreigners there, wouldn't that gift of sudden language, the gift of sudden language, wouldn't that be necessary? It would. And so that's what the gift of tongues is. And that is its spectacular entrance into the biblical timeline. I'm going to briefly look at its use in the church and then we'll wrap it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 27 to 28, and also 40. Look, we've mentioned already that the Corinthian church had a problem with orderliness in their worship. It was people prophesying. It was people, you know, speaking languages, uh, getting in the way of one another. And so Paul, uh, it was just a cacophony of noise, and and Paul had to regulate that. It, there's no benefit to anyone when that is happening okay doesn't benefit the insiders no one understands what's being said doesn't doesn't benefit any outsiders even if they should understand the language is being spoken doesn't benefit them why because they'll just see some crazy people out of control now according to the apostle paul and in agreement with the tongues as described in acts he says speaking in tongues is valuable to the one hearing god's messages in his or her own languages, Uh, but it's useless to everyone else unless it is interpreted or translated. So, you know, and here's here's Paul's own conclusion, his own conclusion regarding tongues that were not interpreted. And you'll see this in 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Paul himself says, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. In other words, I'd speak five words in a language people understand, and then 10,000 in a language that they don't understand. Look, Scripture does not conclusively assert that the gift of speaking in tongues has ceased. And here, I've used that word for the first time now. It doesn't say that it's, it has ceased. At the same time, think about this, if the biblical gift of speaking in tongues were active in church today, It would be performed in agreement with Scripture. It would be real and intelligible language, 1 Corinthians 14.10. It would be for the purpose of communicating God's Word with a person of another language, Acts 2, 6-12. It would be exercised in church in agreement with the command that God gave through Paul. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. First Corinthians chapter 14, 27 and 28. I really urge you to read First Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 tonight. If it were in the church now, it would be in accordance with First Corinthians 14, 33, which says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. How do we wrap this up? God can definitely give a person the gift of speaking in tongues to enable him or her to communicate with a person who speaks another language. Absolutely he can. The Holy Spirit is sovereign in how he distributes the spiritual gifts. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 12, right at the beginning. Just how, imagine how productive, how much more productive, rather, missionaries would be if they didn't have to go to language school. You know, they able to instantly speak to the people in their language. But when we ask those three questions, what's our answer? When you survey the Christian landscape today, Are the majority of believers who claim to practice the gift of speaking in tongues, are they doing it in agreement with the scriptures that we've talked about? I came from that background myself. I grew up in that background. Many of you would have maybe have done that as well. Know that experience. Where you were taught. Repeat after me. This is how you speak in tongues. Wait, hang on a second. If I have to repeat after someone, where's the gift element? I I didn't know how to articulate or understand these things for a long time. Until I first sat under a teaching that explained all this to me. Look, I hope I've helped someone today. Take with you those three questions about spiritual gifts. Let me give you a fourth and very final one and I'll call the team to to play here's a final question ask yourself this do i hold and cherish a high enough view of god the holy spirit do i hold and cherish a high enough view of the holy spirit god the holy spirit father god we thank you for your word Thank you for this day. We thank you for your teaching. Hard to hear in many areas, Lord. I myself know what it's like to unlearn many things and to accept what the plain, revealed, written word of God says. Father, I pray that you impress it on our hearts. Many of us here in this building today and listening will have further questions, will have difficulty in hearing this. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts through your word, that they would investigate for themselves. Let us all be Bereans, Father, when it comes to these matters, particularly with regards to the spiritual gifts which have seen such disrepute and such abuse over the last years. Father, bring clarity as to what they are, how you wish for us to use them, how you endowed us with them, who has them, and let us serve one another faithfully, powerfully in our gifts, that your church might be a witness to this world, a powerful witness to this world, and that your church would grow in its moral obedience to Scripture and its holiness and likeness to your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in us. Thank you, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.